last week on the Sonic Truth Dynasty podcast. He just compares players based on last names. That's my reputation in the industry. You got me. And how many Stevens are there? There's no Stevens. Hello, Steven. Hello, Coach Steven. No, it's Steve. The hard consonant. It's not Peter Carroll. It's Pete Carroll. And Tannehill will always Tannehill. Tannehill gonna Tannehill, yo. You think he's not gonna Tannehill? Even Tannehill knows he's gonna Tannehill. And is this the time when you think people start masturbating to the show? What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Sonic Truth Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Liss. You can find me on Twitter at an outraged Jew. And with me tonight, again, as usual, is Mr. Matt Kelly. You can find him on Twitter at fantasy underscore mansion. What's up, Matt? The greatest day in the history of football Twitter was today. Wow. What, what was so great? What happened today? What didn't happen today? For Christ's sake, the Houston Texans traded Brock Osweiler to the Cleveland Browns as a pure salary dump move. They gave up a second round pick just <laughs> as compensation to take Brock Osweiler and his ridiculous contract off the Texans' hands. That was a trade right out of the NBA trade deadline. It was. That, that is unbelievable to see Osweiler get moved. I mean, I, I honestly thought that he would start the season with Houston if they didn't go get a Romo or somebody like that, and there'd be a quarterback battle maybe with Tom Savage. But I did not see Brock Osweiler just getting dumped to the Cleveland Browns. And the Cleveland Browns have also said that if they can't find a suitor to trade for Brock Osweiler, they're just going to release him. Of course, because he can't play. He's not an NFL quarterback. He doesn't belong in an NFL roster. How he made all that money is inexplicable. It was the ultimate heist in the history of the NFL. And the speed with which the Houston Texans waved the white flag on Brock Osweiler <laughs> was stunning. But very encouraging for DeAndre Hopkins owners, Will Fuller owners, and Wendell Williams owners. Mm. Wendell Williams owners like myself were smiling today. There's hope that Wendell Williams could become the number three wide receiver on that team. I think he might be better than Will Fuller. I think that he does what Will Fuller does better, but I don't think the team will recognize that. This is a team that refused to play Jonathan Grimes for meaningful snaps, even though for years Jonathan Grimes was the best healthy running back when Arian Foster was hurt, yet they still continued to play Alfred Blue over Jonathan Grimes. So if they're going to play Alfred Blue over Jonathan Grimes, the idea that they would play Wendell Williams over a first-round pick... Will Fuller is a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. It's also a pipe dream is the idea that Sterling Shepard will ever be a WR2 in fantasy. He has a WR3 ceiling. I believe we were talking about this at this time last year. 
That is indeed a fact. I believe we both agreed that as long as Odell Beckham was in New York, Sterling Shepard would never be a wide receiver one. He could have some wide receiver one weeks, and he did, but he would never finish the season as a wide receiver one, and he did not. But now the New York Giants, as of today, this will be old news by the time you hear this by a couple days, they have signed Brandon Marshall to be that wide receiver two that the team needs, and undoubtedly Sterling Shepard's production is going to fizzle out from here on out. That news was actually announced two days ago. We're recording on Thursday. The show won't be released until Sunday. So this news is going to be five days old by the time people (laughs) receive it. All of this news will be long forgotten. I hate the breaking news shows, particularly on this show, because we don't drop the shows until Saturday or Sunday, and they're guaranteed to be at least two days late. In the case of this Brandon Marshall news, four days late. But I keep hearing that Sterling Shepard's going to be fine. Yeah, Sterling Shepard's going to be fine. All those that drafted Sterling Shepard in Dynasty Rookie Drafts last year in the top five picks still clinging to hope that he's going to be fine. He's going to be fine, Nate. He's fine. They only run three wide receiver sets in New York. More three wide receiver sets than any other team. Sterling Shepard's going to be on the field a lot, Nate. There's nothing to worry about. He's going to be fine. Just fine. Here's the problem. You didn't draft Sterling Shepard fifth overall last season to be just fine. You didn't draft him before Corey Coleman and Josh Doxson and Michael Thomas to be just fine. Fine's not good enough. You're moving the goalpost to rationalize a bad pick. The Giants are telling you Sterling Shepard is not ever going to be a featured weapon in any passing game. He is a number three option. That's his ceiling. He's a wide receiver three in fantasy. That's his ceiling on a prolific offense, assuming he's getting snaps. If he were on a different team, his ceiling would be even lower. He is not an exciting player, and that's not where you invest your rookie draft capital on low ceiling players, slot possession receivers like Sterling Shepard. That's what his profile told us coming out of Oklahoma. As an old prospect who was small, lacked agility, and lacked college dominance, it was clear looking at his profile on playerprofiler.com that Sterling Shepard would not hold a number two job in the NFL for long. And sure enough, here comes Brandon Marshall ambling over to the New York Giants roster to marginalize Sterling Shepard. And all of you that drafted Sterling Shepard in your dynasty leagues a year ago should have sold him after his aberrant seven-touchdown season in 2016. He will never replicate that. And by not trading him, you've blown an opportunity to retain value. His value has collapsed as of this Brandon Marshall trade. And all of you that are now currently holding a Sterling Shepard on your Dynasty League teams are suckers. (laughs) And in regards to our podcast recording on an odd time of the week, I'd rather be four days late on the Brandon Marshall news than a year late on the Sterling Shepard news. You should have gotten rid of him, guys. (laughs) We talked about it last year. No, 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 no. No, no, that's brilliant, though. I love it. That's brilliant. You're going to get the Brandon Marshall news five days late, but it's okay because we were a year early on the Sterling Shepherd news. Bye-bye!
Exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's nothing else that can be tacked on here. Sterling Shepard still, again, has the potential for wide receiver one weeks, but now they're even more volatile. They're even more unpredictable. So starting Sterling Shepard at this point is purely going to be a flex option. You just really can't take the risk. We talked about it last year, and his ceiling was always cap, Matt. There was no way he was going to be anything more than the second wide receiver in this offense. He was going to be second banana to Odell Beckham. And now with Brandon Marshall here, he's the third banana in this offense. What are the roots of that word? Second banana? Where does that come from? Ah, uh, you know, somebody that needs a lot of potassium, maybe. Second banana. So Odell Beckham Jr. is the first banana. Is there some special designation? First banana. Where does that come from? I, I have no idea. I'm not uh, I'm not a fruit expert. I don't have this answer. No, but you are a cliche expert. You are a cliche aficionado if you're saying things like second banana on this podcast. But you don't know the roots of it. So let's look up the roots of it. If you all know the roots of it, tweet us at Roto Underworld or at Sonic Truth Pod or email us rotounderworld at gmail.com. I only have two pieces of advice. After this roller coaster ride of emotions that was Thursday, March 9th, 2017, opening day of NFL free agency, I broke my personal record for a number of tweets. I broke my personal record for retweets. It's been an exciting day. I can't believe how much action. I think this has been the most action-packed day of transactions in the history of the NFL. Makes me so happy because the transaction for me is as exciting as the action on the field. So go to my timeline at fantasy underscore mansion to get caught up on my feelings about a lot of these transactions because there's just too much to talk about. We could talk about these transactions for four hours, but we're not going to do that. We have an agenda. Yeah. But I do have two pieces of advice for you looking at these transactions. Because like with the Brandon Marshall going to New York signing, what's more interesting is not what will Brandon Marshall produce in New York. It's how will Brandon Marshall's presence impact the players around him. And I want you thinking in those terms. Rewire your brain to think in those terms when you see players land on specific teams. So number one, sell Sterling Shepard low. That's the first piece of advice. And I have one other piece of advice based on these free agent landing spots. So sell low on Sterling Shepard and buy low on Jordan Matthews. Because Alshon Jeffrey signed a one-year deal and a one-year deal only. And it was stated that he signed the one-year deal in hopes of a multi-year deal. But a one-year deal is a one-year deal. And Jordan Matthews is still only 24 years old. He had a very good rookie year. An efficient Sophomore season in the NFL, plus 11.0 production premium, 27th in the NFL, plus 9.6% target premium, number 31 in the NFL, and a 66.4% catch rate in his sophomore season. That was number 28 in the NFL. Jordan Matthews, 14.5 fantasy points per game in his sophomore season in the NFL, was 23rd in the league. He, unlike Sterling Shepard, does have a WR2 season on his resume. And I think there will be more WR2 seasons on Jordan Matthews' resume in the future. But this Alshon Jeffrey signing will ether his dynasty value. So he would be my first target if I didn't own him already across all my dynasty leagues. And also, correct me if I'm wrong, but they signed Torrey Smith today too. Torrey Smith will help drive that down also because I think perception from the outside might be that the Eagles aren't confident in any of these receivers. Clearly, Nelson Aguilar needs work. Nelson Aguilar? He's done. Nelson Aguilar is cooked. 
this is a signal that the Eagles do not believe in Nelson Aguilar and likely do not believe in Doriel Green-Beckham. This is not a signal that they don't believe in Jordan Matthews. I think overall, though, outside perception until something becomes clear is that they just felt like there weren't playmakers around Carson Wentz. So, yeah, like you said, Jordan Matthews has been great the past two seasons, over 117 targets both of the last two seasons, an efficient receiver. He just needs opportunity, and with Alshon Jeffrey joining the lineup for just one season potentially, there is the chance that Jordan Matthews reascends in this offense, and he could still be the number one in this offense, even with Alshon here on a one-year deal. No, he will be the number two this year with Alshon in the lineup. Alshon Jeffrey is one of the premier wide receiver talents in the NFL. But there's still a chance that if Carson Wentz takes a step forward, that Jordan Matthews could be a WR2 in fantasy again this coming season. And then he'll be a high-end WR2 the season after that if Alshon Jeffrey leaves. Last year, Jordan Matthews suffered a knee injury in training camp. He played through it all season, and I believe that throttled his production as well as playing with a rookie quarterback. So he's playing hurt with a rookie quarterback, and yet after a season in which he was top 24 in the NFL, he plays through worst-case scenario, and suddenly Dynasty League enthusiasts are ready to discard him at age 24. This is the ultimate buying opportunity with Jordan Matthews because Torrey Smith is not a threat to Jordan Matthews. Torrey Smith dropped 10% of his targets last year. Come on! Torrey Smith is washed. Probably true, but Alshon Jeffrey's got an injury history that started up in the past two years also, so it's not to say that he won't have the bugs this year, too. I agree that Alshon I'm is not the a doctor. alpha of the I'm two. I'm not predicting Alshon Jeffrey will be a game-time decision again this year like he has been every single game of his career, but I think it's safe to predict there will be games this year in which Alshon Jeffrey is a game-time decision because I got a hold of Alshon Jeffrey's birth certificate and his middle name is Game Time Decision. <laughs> okay. All right, Matt. We got a buzzard email here. And uh, this week, it's sponsored by Local, which you're familiar with. Local is the app that everybody should be going after and getting. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It will change everything in your league's format of communication. If you're tired of getting DMs on Twitter and Facebook messages and forum messages and whatever other message you get from your friends, text messages, this is a great way to funnel everything into one location. And it's an awesome app that you can download on the App Store for Android or for iPhone and add it to your league and it will create better functionality for everybody in it. That was great, man. You're good at those live reads. Woo, you did it. I know you were nervous about it. You said you weren't nervous, but you were nervous to do your first live read. Great job, Nate. So glad it's over. <laughs> now the show can start. Exhale, my friend. Terrific job. We love local. I use it for all my dynasty leagues, and the show's all grows up. We have sponsored segments now. That's how you know you've made it when you have sponsored segments. And now our buzzard segments are sponsored. This makes me happy. So what did this buzzard have to say? So the buzzard had to say, and, and before I read it, Matt, we should let people know again where you can contact us. You can find us on Twitter at SonicTruthPod or at our Gmail at SonicTruthPod at gmail.com. Here's what the buzzard said. What about all those risk factors that you outlined with Le'Veon Bell, Matt? How can you draft Le'Veon over Julio Jones knowing Bell is a Dwayne? Did you change your mind about a suspension or injury risk? No. I retold the story about how I ended up drafting Le'Veon Bell. 
It wasn't like I was deciding between David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon Bell fell to me at the end of the first round. The only legitimate choice, the only alternative to Le'Veon Bell at that draft position was Julio Jones. And I explained why Julio Jones was not the pick for me. I went through it in excruciating detail on the last show. I'm not a Le'Veon Bell zealot. Of course, I would rather have David Johnson, even though they're similar age and similar production profiles. Le'Veon Bell has a risk profile that David Johnson does not. I'm not a masochist. I'm not looking for risk. But when you're looking at the value proposition that every player brings, once players like David Johnson are off the board and Le'Veon Bell is the only player left in his tier at the running back position, it becomes a slam dunk draft pick with your first pick in the draft. What am I going to do? Am I going to look at Le'Veon Bell's Voss, his value over stream, which is absurd, over 17? I've never seen a value over stream on playerprofiler.com over 17. It's just foolish. It's It sounds foolish to say it out loud. A 17.8 Voss. So I'm going to overlook that player because he has risk factors that others don't? Nah. You think I'm going to bypass that player just because I called him risky on a podcast once? Nah. No, 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 no. Why? Because I'm not an idiot. You drop Le'Veon Bell on my lap, I'm going to draft him. Well, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth, Matt. Your delivery was a little stilted on that. I felt like you knew you were about to deliver a cliche. There was a little extra pronunciation behind it. I noticed that. (laughs) Oh, God. People don't give Nate Liss enough credit. Look a gift horse in the mouth. But that is an accurate cliche, and I actually know the roots of that cliche. Because before cars... Horses were often traded as currency, and one of the ways to check a horse's health was to look at their teeth. Their teeth would often tell the story about how healthy they were. So if you were going to give someone a horse for free, you don't check his mouth. You just take it because a free horse is better than no free horse, even if he's unhealthy. Even if he only lasts a year, it's better than nothing. Those are the roots of that particular cliche. So I'm not even going to ask you for the roots because I already know the roots. But now that's two cliches in one show. We're only 20 minutes in, and already I've received a second banana in my ear and a gift horse. I got to keep them coming, Matt. I like to I like to keep you on your toes with the cliches. But I can say that new information has come to light since we talked about Le'Veon Bell's risk factors a year ago. Because a year ago, I did not fully realize the true league-winning upside that fantasy running backs can deliver. After what we saw from David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell and Ezekiel Elliott in 2016, I now have a better appreciation of it. It's easier for me to push the button on a Le'Veon Bell now than it would have been a year ago. Because I think we all, at least to a degree forgot about how much of a competitive advantage elite running backs can be for a fantasy team. And risk-driven volatility is something that you want to lean into in Dynasty at the running back position. Not with Jordan Reed. You don't want to lean into career-ending risk because I think the odds that Jordan Reed finishes the 2017 season on the active roster are now slim, and it's, it's upsetting. It's unsettling to know that. So no, I'm not buying Jordan Reed. I'm not that cavalier with my risk-taking. 
But with a Rob Gronkowski, with a Le'Veon Bell, I'm absolutely leaning into the risk because I know if they flame out in 2017, they could still help me win a league in 2018. That's not the case in redraft. If Le'Veon Bell gets suspended or gets injured in redraft, it can torpedo my chances. But I like my chances owning Le'Veon Bell for his age 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, and age 30 seasons. I'm confident there will be some Le'Veon Bell-led championships during those seasons. With these high-risk players, you can be out of the playoffs one season and then win the championship the next. And that's better than the players that are delivering five points above replacement for three straight seasons. You'd rather have those wildly volatile players that can win you leagues than stockpile the players that are performing moderately above replacement. If that's all you have, you're not going to win a championship. Yeah, I mean, it's like playing stocks, really, if you think about it. You can own a stock that has a lot of value, and at some point, that stock will tank. You still own the same amount of shares of that stock. It's your choice if you're going to sell it when it's worth nothing. But like you said, when you're talking about a year later, maybe after their production dips, that stock can rebound all the way back up or greater. So owning a guy like Le'Veon Bell or Gronk or one of these guys in Dynasty, it's excellent because you're going to get that high-end production when they're playing the way you expect them to. But even if they dip a little bit, there's always opportunity for rebound. So it's a great point on the Le'Veon Bell topic. Well, they don't dip a little bit. Le'Veon Bell or Gronkowski are either going to be missing games or they're going to be helping you win championships. It's one or the other. But they are Dwaynes. Rob Gronkowski is a Dwayne. Le'Veon Bell is a Dwayne. They're Dwayne Bow. They're not Reggie Wayne. Wayne or Dwayne. So who's our all Dwayne team? Got Le'Veon Bell because he's been suspended multiple times after recording hip-hop albums with Snoop Dogg. You've got Rob Gronkowski, who organizes a booze cruise with his brothers in the offseason. You've got Martavis Bryant, who the Steelers refer to in the past tense. He was a great player for us. Wait, what? I've been following him on Instagram. He's working out. He looks great. He's saying all the right things. Why are you referring to him in the past tense? Got Ezekiel Elliott. Ezekiel Elliott was protected during his time at Ohio State. If Ezekiel Elliott were not Ezekiel Elliott, I think he would have been thrown off the team. Michael Floyd melted a breathalyzer. <laughs> Odell Beckham Jr., would you consider him a Dwayne? Absolutely. He's starting to flash the diva factor, so he's got to be on the Dwayne team. Terrell Pryor? Once again, uh, probably on the Dwayne team. Josh Gordon? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just I hate to do this to Josh Gordon. I mean, obviously, he's the captain of the Dwayne team. Everything. The point guard. He wears number 10 for the soccer team. Like, he is the main Dwayne. <laughs> that's good. Here's the name, Joe Mixon. I think that's our all-Dwayne team right there. I think we could feel the full roster just with those players. I think we could at least feel a, a basketball team with those players. Le'Veon Bell plays basketball. I've watched him on Instagram dunk a ball after knee surgery. Look great. And I would stash all of those players that I just listed on my Dynasty roster with the exception of Michael Floyd. Michael Floyd can go to hell. <laughs> oh, jeez. And Joe Mixon is my number one ranked running back. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think after watching the Combine, um, there's definitely some questions about who is the overall number one. I think Joe Mixon is the number one when you look at his production at his pro day versus Leonard Fournette and Dalvin Cook. 
I think he's right there at number one. I think McCaffrey jumped quite a bit up in that list, too. We'll talk about this more in another episode, but I think Joe Mixon could absolutely be the RB1 in this class. I think he is absolutely the number one running back in this class. I actually don't think it's particularly close because he profiles very similar to Ezekiel Elliott. On playerprofiler.com, Joe Mixon, his best comparable player is Ezekiel Elliott. And in our rookie rankings, which we will be releasing soon, Joe Mixon will be our number one running back. Because in a vacuum, I believe that Joe Mixon is the best. When you look at college dominance and you look at size-adjusted athleticism, I don't think anyone compares. Christian McCaffrey compares in terms of dominance and athleticism, but he's much smaller. Dalvin Cook's not the same athlete, and neither is Leonard Fournette. Joe Mixon checks all the boxes unless you believe character can be measured and should be a box that needs to be checked. Yeah, if uh, Joe Mixon's character box was something that you had to check, um, it would not have a check in it when you were done looking at him. He's got some off-field stuff, and he's a polarizing figure right now in the NFL draft. I think a lot of people that wear their emotions on their sleeve would have preferred that Joe Mixon had the crappiest day ever at his pro day. But unfortunately for them, Joe Mixon had a phenomenal day. And so rather than him falling in the draft where I think they feel like he deserves to be, Joe Mixon elevated himself to a point now where it's a question of whether or not somebody would be willing to take him in the first round, but he likely doesn't get out of the second. But do we have a character measurement system? Not to my knowledge. Can we look into a player's heart and know if they're a good person? No, not at all. Do we know which players have punched women throughout their lives? Only the ones that have police records and videos. Exactly. We don't have a character measurement system. And when we talk about evaluating players on this show, we talk about the things that we can measure. If we have empirical evidence that suggests that player X is the best size-adjusted athlete and was a dominant college player, then he's quantitatively great. I can't throttle his greatness based on some character factor that I can't measure. But when I read my Twitter timeline, I see fantasy football analysts lamenting Joe Mixon's presence in the NFL draft, lamenting Joe Mixon's presence in their dynasty rookie drafts and mocks talking about Joe Mixon as if they are an arbiter of a man's character. I don't have a character measurement system, and I can't quantify character risk, but sports analysts seem to have this ability. You see this every day on football Twitter. The easy stances condemning Joe Mixon. Domestic abuse should be punished. You think? The easy stance that Joe Mixon needs to pay a penance for his crime no really the bad guys should be punished victims should receive justice you think so what's your solution how do you want these victims to receive their justice because the criminal justice system failed the victim in the case of joe mixon as the criminal justice system often fails the victim of domestic violence what is your recourse easy stance guy on Twitter? Would you like to empower Roger Goodell? Is that the solution? Would you like Roger Goodell to be empowered to give lifetime bans based on what he sees on restaurant security footage? Because that won't be controversial. Roger Goodell handing out lifetime bans, that's going to go really well. That Ray Rice situation handled flawlessly. 
So what are you going to do, Twitter moralizer? What's your solution? You're going to volunteer to be a martyr and pass on Joe Mixon in your fantasy football dynasty rookie draft? Really? You're going to go to the outer limits of nobility and intentionally degrade your fantasy football team to demonstrate your moral conviction. Get over yourself. We analyze a game that's a proxy for another game. Your easy stance tweets about Joe Mixon help exactly no one. They are self-serving and self-serving only. Do you actually want to make a difference? and not grandstand on social media, if you're actually interested in making a difference in the lives of domestic abuse victims, I know how to do it. If you're actually interested, you should advocate for laws making it easier to obtain restraining orders, as well as making it more punitive when individuals violate restraining orders. Because there are advocacy groups out there that you could join and become an active member of and actually make a difference if you genuinely care about this problem. Because it is a problem. Because our criminal justice system, more often than not, fails victims of domestic abuse. As a society, we do an awful job arresting and litigating domestic abusers. And your fantasy football message board post is helping exactly no one. If you're truly passionate about this issue, help to reform the criminal justice system to better protect victims of domestic violence. Otherwise, you're just arbitrarily picking out Joe Mixon for a scarlet letter because he's famous. And you feel inconvenienced that you have to read his name in pixels on your computer screen when you're looking at Dynasty League rosters. Aww. That stinks for you. You have to look at his name, and he's a bad guy. You should tweet about it. Such an imposition on you. But you want justice. Justice for whom, though? Do you even know the name of the woman that was punched by Joe Mixon? How many of you who are outraged that Joe Mixon is going to be allowed to play football? The sacrosanct profession in our society. It's not like they're giving Joe Mixon a medical license. Any additional punishment of Joe Mixon at this point would be considered vigilanteism because that's what vigilanteism is. When you punish an individual beyond what law enforcement is capable of, then you're a vigilante. And vigilanteism in and of itself is immoral. So let me get this straight. The Twitter moralists are advocating for immorality as an answer to the immorality. And who would you like to carry out this justice? You want to deputize Roger Goodell? Yeah, he's a great candidate to be your sports vigilante, isn't he? Great track record. Fantasy football is a hobby. We're here to have fun. We're here to distract away from some of the more serious aspects of our lives. And what we're here to do is to provide an outlet for people that's not serious. It's one of the great values of recreation. Recreation extends people's lives, not just because it gives them activity, but it is also a mental stress relief. That's why we're here. And what we do on this show is clinical analysis of a game that's a proxy of another game. Very rarely do we take any of this seriously. And all of us that enjoy 
football and fantasy football are already compromised morally. This is not the priesthood. We're participating in a blood sport spectacle. We're detached from it because it is a game on top of another game, but the game that it's based on is blood sport. So we're already morally compromised because football destroys lives. Family members of players and the players themselves. Many of their lives are ruined by the sport. I see it. I'm morally compromised already, as is every other person analyzing football. That's what's so maddening to me about these easy stances on Twitter. Because, of course, we want justice for domestic violence victims. Of course, we don't like the bad guys in society. That's not helpful to try to make others that are in this with you, the shared immorality, making them feel bad while making yourself feel better. We're already compromised morally by participating in this spectacle. And there's no place for martyrdom with Joe Mixon. You're going to choose to not draft Joe Mixon even though he's the best player available? You're really going to do that? I can't think of more idiotic platform for martyrdom than a fantasy football league rookie draft. And specifically, the analysts of fantasy football, like Nate and I, we look at fantasy football through a more analytical prism, and we try to clinically analyze each player's capability, their lifetime value. In the late 1800s, the country was being wired with electricity, and there was a rivalry between the people at Westinghouse and the people at Edison General Electric. The people at Edison General Electric, they wanted direct current to power the electrical grids around the country. From city to city, they were installing direct current systems. But direct current systems were flawed in that they were inefficient. You had to have an electric generator, a power station on every city block because direct current doesn't travel very far before it loses all of its voltage. However, alternating current is much more efficient, but at the time that it was being developed in the 1800s was more volatile, was difficult to harness. And working with Westinghouse, Nikola Tesla harnessed it, made it a viable solution to wire up a city with alternating current much more efficiently, much more cost effective. And I read a book recently called The Last Days of Night. And it was actually written from the perspective of Westinghouse's lawyer, because Westinghouse and Edison were battling who would have the right to power the light bulbs of America. It was from the perspective of Paul Kravath. He's a famous lawyer, founding member of Kravath, Swain, and more. And he was representing Tesla and Westinghouse. And there was an interesting twist along the way in the battle to determine which current would power the electric grids of the United States. A big component was public perception. And someone invented an electric chair powered by alternating current. And this horrified the people at Westinghouse because... If a state ended up killing a man using alternating current, it could scare municipalities away from wiring up their city with alternating current and tip the scales toward the direct current advocates. So Paul Kravath, representing Westinghouse, sat in on the very first execution in the United States via electric chair. William Kemmler, an axe murderer from New York, killed his wife with an axe. That's how axe murderers do it. <laughs> and he was going to be the first person killed with an electric chair by the state. Sounds fun, right? Yeah, it sounds like a blast. So Paul Kravath attends the execution, and someone from the Edison camp also attends the execution, gleefully. And there were a bunch of researchers, doctors attending, as well as 
family members of the victim. And, of course, prison guards, the warden. And they had a direct order from the governor of the state of New York to kill William Kemmler with electricity. But they had never killed a human being with electricity before. So when they first tried to kill him, they failed. They tried again, and they failed. Because they didn't realize how many volts they needed to get the job done. They tortured this man for minutes. And that's a long time to have electricity running through you. Minutes. Eventually, they had to crank it up a higher voltage than the chair was really equipped for. And it ended up setting the man on fire. It created a mini explosion in his anatomy. And bits of his burning flesh were sprayed around the room. And Paul Kravath and members of the deceased family ran out into the yard and were vomiting. Most people were sick. They were ashen. They witnessed something horrific that they will never be able to undo. They witnessed immorality. And then the doctors came out and they were not vomiting. The doctors were writing down their observations because that's their job. They were there to document the effects of electricity on the human body. That's their job. Our job is to document the capabilities of football players to score fantasy points. That's our job. That's what a fantasy analyst does. And the last place where it makes sense to sermonize about social injustices is a fantasy football message board. Nate, you're an electrical engineer. Uh Uh-oh. Are you familiar with Nikola Tesla? I am familiar. Fact-checking this story, does this ring true that alternating current would be more efficient but harder to harness? Yes. Yep. It's true. This whole topic, if I tried to explain it, would get really boring. But fact-checking along, no, this is correct. And there's AC everywhere. So, yes, it it became the dominant one. Yeah, Westinghouse ended up winning. And it was one of the great stories of the Industrial Revolution was the electrification of America because we were first. And the Industrial Revolution was not just industrial. The revolution was the division of labor and specialization within industries, including law firms, because Paul Kravath founded the modern law firm. When he took the Westinghouse case, there was no such thing as a law firm that we know today with associates and partners. There were no associates. When you hired a lawyer, even Westinghouse, you hired one guy to be your lawyer and he did all the work. Paul Kravath invented the modern division of labor that we see in law firms where you have the associates doing a lot of the research then you have senior associates and then you have the partner who's actually trying the case so there are fascinating layers to this book and i highly recommend it the last days of night and how westinghouse ended up winning was he reached out to jp morgan who owned a majority interest in edison general electric and jp morgan usurped thomas edison who was against a partnership with Westinghouse and essentially kicked Thomas Edison out of his own company. And that company became General Electric. They took the name off the company. Haven't you ever wondered that? Thomas Edison, all these inventions, why is nothing called Edison? There's no Edison anywhere. The Bell Telephone, right? Remember? Atlantic Bell, Pacific Bell, Alexander Graham Bell. He submitted his patent for the telephone 24 hours before Edison did. (laughs) And his name was all over the product. Edison's name was wiped out of the history books, but General Electric, the General Electric that we know today, that owned NBC at one point, was originally Thomas Edison's company. The whole thing that you just explained from the history of the electric chair, and even before that, just trying to talk about mixing in a fantasy football perspective, 
That's really well put, and I see it all the time on Twitter, and I get in debates all the time on Twitter, especially it's like Twitter is this fast-acting format, social media, where you can just say something, and maybe you regret it, maybe you won't, but it's so instantaneous, we just post it. And all these people wear their hearts on their sleeves. They have these bleeding hearts, and they don't want Joe Mixon to play in the NFL, and they think he should be punished worse. And these are probably the same people that I was bitching at last year saying, okay, then you better not put Tyreek Hill in your DFS roster. You better not pick him up off the waiver wire, right? And so if you want to be the guy that doesn't take Joe Mixon because of your moral stance and you want to take Cooper Cup instead of him, then go ahead. But you're doing yourself a disservice by allowing emotions to be filtered into fantasy football. Passing on a guy like Joe Mixon is asinine if your only reason for doing it is because of the horrific choice that he made when he was a young kid. And I'm not justifying it because of age or anything like that. He's an idiot for doing it. I'm positive he regrets it. He's not just an idiot. He's a despicable human being. But that's not the point. That's not our job to judge Joe Mixon. Our job is not to watch Joe Mixon's pro day and then vomit in the courtyard. Our job is to watch Joe Mixon's 40, his three cone, his 20 yard shuttle, his vertical, his broad jump, write those numbers down, put them in a database and help fantasy gamers determine whether drafting Joe Mixon optimizes the talent of their dynasty league rosters. That's our job. There's only two ways, honestly, to look at this. If you remove the casual fan from the scenario, if you look at fantasy football and you look at NFL teams, if I'm an NFL team, then I have a moral decision to make for my organization, my team, my coaches, the philosophy, the mentality, what we've created. Then to me, it may matter a lot more what he did off the field. As a fantasy football player, the only thing I care about is where he's drafted in the NFL draft. Nothing else matters to me at all. If he goes in the first round, that's phenomenal. If he goes undrafted, that's pretty terrible. I still know his talent level, but when we're talking fantasy football, all I care about is draft position. And honestly, what he did off the field, that's out of sight, out of mind for me when I'm talking fantasy football. I'm proud of us, Nate. <laughs> we went five whole shows, and I never walked up to Mount Kelly and preached from on high. But episode six, I did it. I have been to the mountain. <laughs> but we have to lighten the show. I can't believe the serious vortex that we both allowed the show to get sucked into. But I'll take full responsibility. And we spent way too much time talking about serious things like killing William Kemmler in the first electric chair. Which takes me to John Ross. <laughs> Is John Ross an idiot for not wearing Adidas? Yes, 100%. I, you know, I actually had to go look it up to make sure that he didn't actually win an island because I found out after the fact, and if you're on Twitter like most of us are, John Ross ran in a pair of Nikes. Now, he broke Chris Johnson's long-standing 40-time record of 4.24 with an official 4.22. But because he didn't do it in a pair of Adidas running shoes, he didn't win an island. And did you hear what he said was the reason that he wore Nikes and didn't care that he wasn't getting an island? The reason John Ross is indifferent 
about winning an island or not. Why he was fine wearing Nikes or Adidas didn't matter. He was a Nike guy. He's going to wear Nike. He doesn't care about winning an island because, according to John Ross, he can't swim and doesn't own a boat. (laughs) Nate, that makes perfect sense. When I heard that reason, I was like, of course. Slap my (laughs) forehead. Islands are surrounded by water. If you can't swim and you don't have a boat, how are you going to get to the island? That was a perfect response. John Ross thinking on his feet in interviews already. I think he's going to ace the Wonderlick. I don't know, man. All he had to do was put on a pair of Adidas. If he knew he was that fast, unless Nike's going to give him some fat endorsement, he was almost a lock for an island, Matt. Uh, we don't know what kind of island, but nonetheless. So I got a question for you moving on to other players. Jamal Williams. <laughs> Does somebody still have a first round grade on him? It's impossible. And I love how right we were about Jamal Williams. It's told you so radio time on the Sonic (laughs) Truth podcast with Jamal Williams. We heard multiple draft analysts talk about Jamal Williams being a first round pick. Giving Jamal Williams a first round draft grade was the heights of absurd draft analysis because he was productive, but not necessarily super efficient. And he wasn't catching a lot of passes through four years at BYU. So he had to be athletic in order to move the needle. Jamal Williams was highly combine dependent. That was the analysis. And you can't project a highly combine dependent player to be drafted in the first round. And what did Jamal Williams do with the combine? Oh, 4.5940. That's a 95.5 40th percentile speed score. Burst score, 112.5, 17th percentile. And an agility score, get this. <laughs> this is great. 1178 agility score, 9th percentile. So 44th percentile, 17th percentile, 9th percentile. We have a new sound effect, the sad trombone. Let's give Jamal Williams the sad trombone. Can you give him four sad trombones for me like you did last week? God, I hope people heard that episode. That was that was Matt Kelly sticking it to Nate Liss for having creative control of the show. And God, he stuck it in. I stuck you with a sad trombone. Oh, God. Honest question. Yes. Was Jamal Williams electrocuted before he ran the 40? If he wasn't, he should have been after. Was he tasered before the three cone? I don't know. I, I, you know, it's people that I really trust out there um, that had him really, really high. And he may be great on film. This is, and we're going to get into this in other episodes because, and probably next week this will come Was up. Was there guys. a live electrical wire loose on the field in Indianapolis that he had to avoid during his 20-yard shuttle? I don't know. He underperformed miserably. That's all we can really say. And he's absolutely not a first-round running back, as we suspected. You know who did do well at the Combine? Exceeded all expectations. More Told You So Radio on the Sonic Truth Podcast. The guy we loved heading into the Combine only helped his draft stock. That's Chris Godwin. My God, Chris Godwin for the win. <laughs> what did you think stick. of Chris Godwin's Combine? Woo! <laughs> Man. Mm. He, <laughs> I'm just waiting for you to do another sound in the middle of me talking. Mm. Uh, 
on, honestly, I on the last episode we had kind of talked and and I had said I thought he was a good athlete, not a great athlete. Huh? And when I saw him perform at the combine again, these are different conditions, but when I go back and watch now things appear more obvious after seeing the combine. Huh? But a 44240, a 442, I would have never guessed that. It's 6 foot 1, 210 pounds nearly. Huh? phenomenal athlete Matt mm-hmm. phenomenal athlete so mm. I think that pretty much Chris Godwin is an absolute lock for the second round and it's just a question of what teams do from here I'm participating in the Roto World rookie mock at this very moment it's a slow draft I drafted Dalvin Cook with the third pick overall I had to I couldn't take Joe Mixon because I was drafting before Joe Mixon participated in his pro day I had no idea what Joe Mixon was going to run if I knew Joe Mixon was going to run a 4-4-3, I would have taken Joe Mixon, but I didn't know. And I can't guarantee that Christian McCaffrey is going to get drafted by a team that intends to use him as a bell cow. But Dalvin Cook and Leonard Fournette are going to get workhorse touches in their rookie season. So I was obligated to draft Dalvin Cook in this rookie mock. And I was shocked that with the third pick in the second round, I was able to draft Chris Godwin. Oh, so good. So good. Not only does he run a 4-4-2, which, by the way, at 209 pounds, that's a 109.5, 88th percentile height-adjusted speed score. The other metrics, burst, agility, catch radius, all 68th percentile or above. And when you look at the college production, 34.9 dominator rating. That's good, not great. But the breakout age, 19.5. So a tremendous age-adjusted college dominance to go along with a 128.3 95th percentile spark x score chris godwin checks all the boxes he's big he's athletic he was dominant how was this guy available in the second round of a rookie draft it's pretty unexplainable i don't even know if it's a 12 team draft i'm just curious who would have went before him at 9 10 11 12 players that are worse than chris godwin yeah obviously it doesn't make much sense to me But yeah, Chris Godwin had a phenomenal combine, and this is where you get that spotlight put on you. You get your opportunity to perform at the combine. You excel like Chris Godwin did. He didn't have nearly the buzz that many of these players coming into the combine did, but now you start to hear the big analysts. He deserved the buzz, though. He deserved it. If you were listening to the Sonic Truth podcast, you would have heard... Well, it'll be fun to speculate where he goes now on the NFL teams because when you go back and watch him, great contested catch guy. And if you've got this sort of size and you've got that sort of speed and you're a contested catch threat, you know, I'm I'm excited to see where he ends up. There's so many rosters that could use an infusion of a guy like this. Yeah, ideal NFL flanker, a high-volume flanker in that Pierre Garçon mold. But I think he's Pierre Garçon 2.0. He's electric. A lot of electricity references today. (laughs) (laughs) These shows have themes, ladies and gentlemen. An interesting case is Josh Malone. He shocked people at 6'3", running a 4'4", flat. That's a 114.094th percentile height-adjusted speed score. Turns out he's a close comparable to Terrence Williams. Similar production profile with that high college yards per reception, 92nd percentile college yards per reception. Broke out at a fairly early age, super fast, 
but not agile, and he showed very little burst. He's an interesting case, a guy with a 6'3 player whose 993 catch radius is below the 40th percentile. These are always conundrum players for me. And when you look at his production, it the yards per reception were phenomenal, 19.4. You know, you can justify his lack of receptions a little bit in the way that Tennessee used their offense. Alvin Kamara only had 10 less receptions than he did. Um, same as sophomore receiver Jennings and their quarterback, Joshua Dobbs, who rushed the ball 150 times as a quarterback. So if you're looking at production alone, he didn't have the most opportunity to produce. But Josh Malone is is a player that I was excited about. Good hands, one of the best concentration catchers in the class. Hand fights really well. There was a lot to like about him. And so it'll be interesting to see how NFL organizations and scouts evaluate him in the draft. Well, that's why we have College Dominator, Nate. 66th percentile College Dominator is impressive. That's right there with Chris Godwin. I think Josh Malone is right there with Chris Godwin, but because he lacks the burst and agility, I can't put him in that class, but he's only 21 years old. He's one of the youngest wide receivers in this class. He's one of the youngest players in this draft class. Now, what about Carlos Henderson? Would you consider Carlos Henderson to be one of the combine winners? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Carlos Henderson is was one of the guys pre-combine that I had in my top five, and he didn't do anything to hurt himself. In fact, he validated a lot of things that a lot of people felt about him. Um, Back to his college production, he had an insane year at Louisiana Tech this year, 82 receptions, 1,500 yards, 18.7 yards per reception, 19 touchdowns. So what he did on the field was exactly what you wanted to see out of a guy that was deserving of the draft slot that I think he's going to go. And I told you pre-combine that I didn't think he was going to get out of the second round. And after the combine, I'm absolutely positive of that fact. Yeah, he looks like a more explosive version of Sterling Shepard. His best comparable player on playerprofile.com is Sterling Shepard, but he's faster. And his yards per reception was much higher at Louisiana Tech, 18.7. Why was his yards per reception so high? Because Carlos Henderson is an equivalent route runner to Sterling Shepard. Sterling Shepard was touted as the best route runner in the 2016 class. Carlos Henderson is being touted as the best route runner in the 2017 class. He's one of the strongest players at the catch point, but Carlos Henderson also has that yards after the catch capability that Sterling Shepard does not. Carlos Henderson is also comparable to Randall Cobb and Golden Tate. We talked about the yak monster archetype in the NFL. It is a rare archetype. Every few years, you're going to have a Golden Tate come along, and then you're going to have a Jarvis Landry come along, but it's every few years. There are not very many players in the NFL that are giving you significant yards after the catch per target on an annual basis. Whether it's Randall Cobb, Golden Tate, Jarvis Landry, there are only a handful of players that you know every year are going to be in the top 10 in yards after the catch per target. You cannot rely on yards after the catch in most cases, but Carlos Henderson looks like one of these rare Golden Tate-like athletes where it's conceivable he can win on an annual basis with yak. Yeah, he's explosive. This is what we talked about. Carlos Henderson with the ball in his hands is unreal. If you get a chance to go and watch any of his film on Draft Breakdown, when you see him get a crossing route over the middle, he's gone. He's electric. He's impossible to stop, and he uses great angles. And Carlos Henderson's just one of the special guys in this class. 
His agility score, 13th percentile, 11.53 on playerprofiler.com. Not exceptional, but... But neither things- was Randall Cobbs, neither was sure. Jarvis Landry's, neither was Golden Tate. The Yak Monster archetype in the NFL has low agility. They're fast players that aren't particularly agile. They're great at catching the ball, pivoting upfield, and then exploding by defenders, breaking tackles. That's where Carlos Henderson wins, and it's conceivable that he could be a regular in the top yards after the catch per target wide receivers every season in the NFL. He could be the heir to Golden Tate. And it's like I talked about a couple episodes ago. He was an elite kick returner, 32.2 yards per return, number four in the nation. So he's got that open field vision as a kick returner, number two this year in return touchdowns. That's another thing that these Yak Monster players excel in, special teams. Yeah, exactly. And Carlos Henderson is absolutely dangerous with the ball in his hands. So it'll be exciting to see where he goes to. Crossing my fingers, he goes to the Seahawks. He's not going to the Seahawks. They already have Doug Baldwin. They have enough diminutive wide receivers. They're all hurt. The Seattle Seahawks need a big receiver. They need Krishan Hogan. Oh, God. Krishan Hogan from Marion, also 21 years old, a young player, but he excelled across the board at the Combine. 105.5, 83rd percentile height-adjusted speed score, 67th percentile burst. 77th percentile agility, but because he's big, 6'3", 222, 10-18 catch radius, 82nd percentile. His best comparable player on playerprofile.com, Alshon Jeffrey. Now, that's best-case scenario. The problem is, Krishan Hogan, while he was incredibly dominant, 44.8%, dominator rating, 88th percentile, it was at Marion. And the big, small-school player rarely breaks through in the NFL. There's a lot more Corey Washingtons in the NFL than there are... Marquise Colston? Yeah. Marcus Colston isn't even in the league now. That's how rare that particular profile is in the upper echelon of NFL wide receivers. So that's my concern with Krishan Hogan. If he went to a larger school, if he was from a Division One program, I would have to clean the drool off this microphone. But if I did drool on this microphone, I might get electrocuted. Unlikely. So let me tell you a couple of things that I learned about Krishan Hogan. Number one, good luck finding anything on him. <laughs> Film, <laughs> stats, Literally, to find his season stats, if you found them, this is a great... We have them on Player Profiler. We have the Dominator, the College Yards Per Reception, the Breakout Age. That's our job at Player Profiler. We have people that are trained in the dark arts of data gathering for small school players. No, no, that's not what I'm trying to say here. If you want game logs, if you want anything like that, and you're trying to find it, you better bring somebody that's got some survival skills, bring a private detective with you. I found it, and the only thing I could find was a PDF with it on there. But while I did it, I found one interesting fact about him. So 80 receptions, 1,435 yards, 15 touchdowns. I had never seen Krishan Hogan until the Combine. Never. Hadn't heard of him. How did he get an invite from Marion? Is it because Marion is in Indiana and it's near the Combine? Did someone that works at the Combine know a family member of Krishan Hogan? Is that how he got an invite? I have no idea, but I want to say this one thing. So, right, 15 touchdowns as a receiver. Have you heard of his running back stats? This is the most unreal stat line you will ever hear in your life. Go. In 2016... He carried the ball 23 times for 53 yards and 10 touchdowns. 
the goal line back, Krishan Hogan. <laughs> unbelievable. I love it. 10 rushing touchdowns on 23 attempts. That is unbelievable. He was the refrigerator Perry <laughs> of whatever conference Marion participated in. Now, looking at these small school big receivers, there's two noteworthy big explosive wide receivers that excelled at the combine and came from non-major conference programs. Krishan Hogan's one. Robert Davis is the other. Who you got? If you had to choose between Hogan and Davis, who you got? It's not really a question for me. It's Robert Davis. Um, Robert Davis had relatively good seasons the last two years. His senior year was pretty good. Almost 1,000 yards both of his last two seasons. They were all right. They were not good. This is why Krishan Hogan is the choice, because Robert Davis only posted a 31% dominator rating at Georgia State. You have to do better than that, Nate. I don't care if you have a 137.7 burst score, 99th percentile. His best comparable player is Dante Moncrief. But some would argue Dante Moncrief has yet to break out, that Dante Moncrief is a flawed wide receiver, and that he will never achieve even WR2 status in the NFL as a fantasy asset. Robert Davis being a poor man's Dante Moncrief is not exciting to me. First off, he needs to produce at 6'3", 220. You need to do better than a 31% dominator rating against Georgia State competition, competing for targets with the teammates at Georgia State. I mean, come on. Oh, really? Yeah, let's let's go down the line and name some of the teams that Marion played this year. We've got... Krishan Hogan had a 44% dominator rating. He did his job. That's what I would have expected from Robert Davis, but Robert Davis underwhelmed in terms of production. Yes, he broke out at an early age, 18.4, 97th percentile, so I do love the age-adjusted dominance, but I question why, as a senior, he wasn't better. That's a red flag on the Robert Davis profile. I can't tell you why he wasn't better in his senior season. We had this same conversation last year about Michael Thomas. This reminds me of another wide receiver came from a Georgia university, DeAndre Smelter. Robert Davis smells like Smelter. <laughs> Here's what I'll say about Robert Davis. He's got the requisite athleticism. And one thing about Robert Davis is... You think? About his game log. His athleticism smells like burning electricity it's so explosive at least on robert davis's profile he's got a game versus wisconsin which by the way was one of his best games of the year eight catches for 93 yards and a touchdown now i don't know exactly how Krishan hogan did against saint francis or sienna heights or robert morris or university of saint francis or taylor or Come on. I mean, I'm sorry. And I agree with you to a point, but I don't even know what conference he plays in. For all I know, it's the Mid-States Football Association. Is it even a conference? Stop. There's it. a larger point here. Oh, God. The fact that we have to talk about Krishan Hogan and Robert Davis when discussing the players that excelled at the Combine tells you all you need to know about this wide receiver class. It is awful. The players at the top aren't even good. Mike Williams now is riddled with red flags after opting out of the 40, a la Laquan Treadwell. All we have is Corey Davis posted up at the top, a couple guys like Mike Williams and Juju Smith-Schuster that have question marks, guys that we like, guys that have a lot of potential, but plenty of question marks as well, and then just a bunch of dudes. <laughs> 
I'm just this wide receiver class is terrifying. It makes me want to trade my first round picks in every single dynasty league rookie draft. Because if I can't get McCaffrey or Mixon, I'm dead. My first round pick is not going to return value. Sure, I can draft Chris Godwin or Carlos Henderson and hope that they become Pierre Garçon 2.0 or Randall Cobb 2.0, but odds are they won't. I walked away from this combine disappointed in the running backs and horrified by the wide receiver class. (laughs) What do you think about Jerome Lane? Before I tell you what I think about Jerome Lane, I just want to put this out there for Mike Williams. Look, Mike, if you're too scared to run, I'll run for you. I can post that time that you need. If you're looking for about okay, no one wants to see you run the forty. Why are so many people talking about running the forty? I don't know. It feels like if I got out Rich Eisen runs the forty as a publicity stunt because he has to cover the combine and it's incredibly boring and he's trying to mix it up and do something fun and funny. But he did that years ago. It's over. The shtick is over. The bit is dead. It's not dead. No one wants to see anyone run the combine. Even the best athletes. I don't even want to watch John Ross run the combine, much less Nate Liss. Get over yourself. We have one more big wide receiver from a small school who impressed at the combine with his workout metrics. Talk to us about Jerome Lane. Okay, fine. I will get to Jerome Lane, but I'm serious about the Mike Williams thing. So here's the thing about Jerome Lane. You're not serious about the Mike Williams thing. I am. If Mike contacts me on... It's a bad joke. That's what it is. I will. It's an unfunny joke it's not un- by Nate Liss. It's self-aggrandizing, <laughs> unfunny, it's- bad content. It's bad content. It deserves not to go in the outtakes. It deserves to be cut out of the show completely. No, because that's the point of the show where people are breaking out the jurgens. This is what they want, Matt. This is when it starts. Right Why? now. What's the Jurgens reference? I think that's when you ask me if people stroke it to the show. And I know they do. That's a fact. But let me get back to Jerome. I hate you. Let me get back to I Jerome Lane. I really do. I hate you. This has been a long show. We've been in front of these mics for well over an hour. And I can't stand the, you right this now. This isn't you talking. This isn't the real you. So, Jerome Lane? I'm going to strap you in an electric <laughs> chair and pull the lever. Oh, gosh. Well... If this is the last thing I'll ever get to say on this planet, let me talk about Jerome Lane. He's such a polarizing prospect. So limited college experience, Matt. Two years at the position. Formerly a linebacker, a defensive end, and a safety. This class is just hilarious. (laughs) Right? I mean. This wide receiver class. And it just keeps getting better and better. Former linebackers. Go ahead, Nate. No, I mean, this is unbelievable. Krishan Hogan was a janitor a couple of weeks ago. And now we're talking about Jerome Lane. Let's do this. So why do you not like janitors? What do you have against janitors? They do great work. Uh, No, I'm just saying. Where would we be without janitors? We'd be shuffling through trash. Why would you diminish the contribution of janitors in our society? First off, there's no janitor in my house that takes my trash to my trash can and that takes it out to my curb for, I think you're looking for- I'm not talking about in your house, janitors in municipal buildings, in schools. We need janitors. They provide a critical service. Show some respect. (laughs) I am showing respect. I brought it. You're not, clearly. Oh, Krishan Hogan was a janitor last week. Because that's the lamest profession I could think of. 
it's not the lamest profession I can think of. At least I'm acknowledging that Krishan Hogan was a janitor. Props to him. Now let's get to Jerome Lane. Dude, fuck you. You're not, you are trying to backpedal your way out of this. And you are you are being burned worse than Logan Ryan last year. I wish I was in an electric chair right now. So if I can just finish this goddamn point. Look. Yeah, clean this up. He is. Is that a janitor reference? Look, Jerome Lane is raw. You can tell the show is just the wheels are coming off right now. It's getting hot in here. He's got he looked raw on film. Uh, which I'm not surprised by for a guy that only played the position for two years, but he shows instinctual intangibles, which obviously came from the defensive side of the ball. Um, natural hands, he did track the ball well. Great ability to break tackles, put himself in good position for receptions. Just can I stop but you? He, this is ridiculous. You're <laughs> ridiculous. What you're saying now that being a linebacker helped improve his instinct. It did. You've been listening to the things that are, you're saying. Can you hear the words as they tumble from your mouth? They don't make any sense. His measurables are good, not great. The 40 time is a red flag. 4-6-0-40 time. You just do not see small school wide receivers that are this slow that do well. If you're going to be big, you also need to have more explosive capability than Jerome Lane does. He reminds me of Devontae Davis from UNLV two years ago. A big player that was relatively dominant, but when he tested at the combine, did not show straight line speed and burst that you would need to win against NFL cornerbacks, especially on the outside. That's the problem with a lot of these big receivers is they're going to be asked to win on the outside. And that's the question you have to ask yourself. Do you really think Krishan Hogan's capable of winning in a way that Brandon Marshall wins, that Des Bryant wins? Robert Davis, can he do it? Jerome Lane, can he do it? Kiaris Garrett couldn't even do it, and he led Division One in receiving yards in his final year at Tulsa. He wasn't explosive enough. He wasn't fast enough. He goes to Carolina, and he can't get off the practice squad. He can't supplant Brenton Burson, and that's what I fear with these wide receivers. None of them can supplant Brenton Burson, including Zay Jones, because now I'm seeing mm. Zay Jones being drafted drafted in the second round of dynasty rookie mocks get out of here with zay jones oh man we're gonna definitely disagree on zay jones um let's zay it ain't so first off let's not ignore the historic season that he did just post 158 receptions video game numbers 1746 yards eight touchdowns He's big. This is why we have a metric called College Dominator. 37.1 was the same as Chris Godwin and Carlos Henderson and Josh Malone, yet his college yards per reception was only 11.1. Do you remember the analysis we had of Kevin White? We called him a compiler at the college level. Mm -hmm. Kevin White, an incredible catch radius, over 1025 in the upper 90th percentile, Zay Jones, same thing, 1027, 92nd percentile catch radius, impressive. But the fact that he was a compiler at East Carolina is a tremendous concern. I will be staying far away from Zay Jones. I figured you were going to bring up his yards per reception, Matt, so I'd like to bring up something else in conjunction with that. Do tell. Keenan Allen 
coming out of college, only averaged one yard per reception more than Zay Jones. And Antonio Brown coming out of college actually averaged a yard less than Zay Jones. So to hinge his potential on his yards per reception is unfair. He may be a compiler. He was a go-to player. But Zay Jones laid into a lot of good teams. He wasn't even the go-to player that you're selling him to be because he only had a 37% dominator rating. East Carolina was putting up video game numbers, as you said, just like Oregon. Zay Jones looks like Josh Huff to me. I don't have the target share here for that season, but there's probably a guy on East Carolina that wasn't putting up video game numbers because he wasn't as good. Everybody was putting up video game numbers, and that's why we have comps on playerprofiler.com. Zay Jones comps to players like Trey McBride. The best comparable that we have of his five best comparables is Nate Burleson. I understand that the snapshot of his workout metrics, 44540, 128.6 burst score, 1080 agility score. Wow, 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 wow. He's 6'2", but he's only 200 pounds. So he's one of these svelte receivers who was getting a free run off the line of scrimmage, running that quick in or that quick slant, gobbling up easy targets, low degree of difficulty, and getting the bare minimum from them. That's Zay Jones. He will get you the bare minimum at the next level. Go ahead and draft Zay Jones in your rookie draft if you're interested in the bare minimum. That's not the fact of what took place because when you're getting the ball 22 times a game, he was receive, he was making 22 receptions in a game. There's no way you can sustain an average of 400 yards to maintain a 19-yard per reception average. It's just a matter of fact that at some point he's going to have to make smaller catches on the field. The problem is his yards per reception are so low because he was catching so many targets. He displays the ability to take deep balls downfield, intermediate routes. He was targeted short a lot, but you can find tons of clips of him burning people deep. And in terms of receptions, the next closest guy on the team had 100 less receptions. 100 less. And that same player had 1,200 less receiving yards. So he was an absolute focal point of this offense. And they played quality teams. I mean, that that's not debatable. They played against Who did they play? quality defenses. They played against South Carolina, Virginia Tech, Cincinnati, North Carolina State's not great. But that's a couple teams there. And all those teams, 22 for 190, Virginia Tech 10 for 115, Cincinnati 11 for 70. I mean, I guess the point is that he caught the ball double digits 90% of his games, he had 22 catches, 18 catches, 19 catches, 17 catches. These are in games. So it's impossible for him to sustain these averages unless every time he's being targeted, it's all the way down the field. And who's to say that the offense was built to play like that? There's a guy on this team that's averaging 18 yards per reception and had 48 catches. Perhaps he was the deep threat. But, I mean, when you're catching the ball 22 times a game, think about what you'd have to do to maintain a 17-point average. You just provided picture-perfect analysis of Kevin White.
we were a year early on the Sterling Shepherd news. I have been to the mountain. You're an electricity expert. You should. This should be easy for you. I'm gonna do all the talking, and you're the electricity expert. Why are you nervous? A lot of electricity references today. Chris Godwin. Uh, oh boy. Number one, it's it's gonna put the bleeding hearts back in their place. I hate you. I'm gonna strap you in an electric chair and pull the lever. It's an unfunny joke by Nate Liss. It's self-aggrandizing, unfunny, bad content. He's not an NFL quarterback. He doesn't belong on an NFL roster. How he made all that money is inexplicable. It was the ultimate heist in the history of the NFL and the speed with which the Houston Texans waved the white flag on Brock Osweiler was stunning. Mmm. Mmm. Uh, oh, boy. Whether it's size related or whatever it is related, Odell Beckham Jr. is 5'11". If he was Odell Beckham Jr., would they need Brandon Marshall if they had two Odell Beckham Juniors? No, but he, he was sold to be the best wide receiver in that class, remember? Remember? Remember, Nate? And we fought with those people, and we tried to tell them it was Doxon, it was Coleman. The idea that Sterling Shepard will ever be a WR2 in fantasy is a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. He has a WR3 ceiling. I believe we were talking about this at this time last year. And all of you that are now currently holding a Sterling Shepard on your Dynasty League teams are suckers. Mm, that is indeed a fact. He's the third banana in this offense. What are the roots of that word? Second banana? Where does that come from? You are cliche aficionado if you're saying things like second banana on this podcast. Mmm. 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 Uh. Oh, boy. This wide receiver class. I mean, it just keeps getting better and better. Former linebackers. Nah. I wish I was in an electric chair right now. This buzzard message is brought to you by Local. We have a sponsor for our buzzard messages. We're all grows up. The buzzard's a very popular segment, and it makes sense that it would be sponsored. Mmm. 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 Uh. Oh, boy. Uh. Oh, boy. It's impossible for you to have an aneurysm because you have all that padding when your head is stuck up your ass. Oh, I know. I showed him to my wife, and she's like, Jesus. I'm like, yep. He is the main Dwayne. You've never seen a player like Zay Jones in terms of statistics. I'm just saying, the, the amount of catches. That is a red flag to me. That's what people are going to be buying, these video game statistics. How many players from Oregon's video game offense became impactful NFL producers? Where's Ken John Barner right now? Where's Josh Hoff right now? Tell me, where are they? Are you still apologizing for Zay Jones? You're still trying to convince me that Zay Jones is good? By the way, is his real name Isaiah? And he named himself Zay? Did that happen? It's a ridiculous nickname to think that you can go from Isaiah to Zay. That's like me saying my name is At. Call me At Kelly. 
like an at sign. That's how ridiculous it would be. Not just A-T, the letters. If I said my name is at sign Kelly, that's the equivalent of Isaiah Jones calling himself Zay. That's what I'm saying, but we're only at number six. There's four more guys there. So Zay Jones could be eight, nine, ten is what I'm saying. <laughs> you are generally a pretty straight shooter, but as of this moment, right now on this show, you are completely full of shit. You have Zay Jones ahead of Katie Cannon. No, but Katie Cannon's in the top ten. <laughs> there we go. This is it. I know this is can you feel the walls closing in around you? Can you feel the fraudulent nature that is Nate List closing in? Can you feel the darkness descend upon you as you are exposed? Uh, I don't have receivers 6 through 10 ranked. I just don't. I know who's there. I just don't have them shuffled. You don't know who's there, clearly, because you think St. Jones is in there, and he's actually not. Where do you have Taewon Taylor? Probably in that same back of the group. I just, I did, I just, I did, I just, I did. <laughs> Look, if Zay had zero production and the frame that you're discussing and all these other things there might be more of a conversation there but yeah he wasn't an air raid style offense and he posted video game numbers bingo so what what if he didn't post those numbers it would be even worse what if he was the guy on the roster that only had 40 catches for 10 yards per reception how much worse would that be in this conversation would we not be having this conversation i didn't want to have this conversation yesterday I certainly don't want to be having this conversation to Zay. This is too much. What do you want me to say? Mmm. 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 Uh. Oh, boy. Uh. Oh, boy. Uh. Oh, boy. Because I got a hold of Alshon Jeffrey's birth certificate, and his middle name is Game Time Decision. Killing William Kemmler in the first electric chair. Which takes me to John Ross. <laughs> I don't know how that segue works, but it did. He deserved the buzz, though. Mmm. Mmm. Uh. Oh, boy. Mmm. Ah, mm. uh, oh boy. Robert Davis smells like smelter. Well, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth, Matt. You love putting shit and janitor in the same sentence. You're such an asshole. Uh, here's the thing. Do janitors clean the toilets, though? Aren't they more like trash? Isn't that, I don't know. Is that, isn't there like a difference there? The janitor clean the toilets? Do you know how pretentious you sound at this very moment? Oh, I don't know exactly what the janitor does. Does he do just the trash or is it the trash in the toilets? <laughs> I heard Krishan was a janitor at one point. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to say to this. I want you to be more humble. I want you to be more appreciative of the people that do the critical tasks that go underappreciated in our society. 
Without janitors, we would be living in filth. If I appreciated every job that every person on this planet did, I'd have no time to do anything else. Just don't mock people's professions, particularly those that, that perform critical tasks. Okay, it's not critical. That's all I'm asking you to do. It's not, it's not critical. They're not a fucking heart surgeon, okay? These guys aren't doing open heart surgery. Are you still doing this? You're doubling down on your anti-janitor take? That they do a critical service. You don't need to put the word critical in any conversation about a janitor, okay? Because they flip the urinal cakes. I don't care. You are not coming off as likable right now. Because most people that are pretentious at least are sophisticated. Like you're the worst person because you're not sophisticated and you're pretentious. It's literally the worst type of person to be. What if I told you that when I was 16 or 17, I worked at a grocery store and had to sweep the floors and clean all the bathrooms for like a year? You're the type of guy who does janitorial services and calls yourself a maintenance technician. You are the worst person. I tried to give you a little backstory on Krishan Hogan saying that it's impressive. He came from being a janitor to all of a sudden to the combine and prepared and ready to go. And then somehow we got onto the fact that Nate List hates janitors. Nate List hates janitors. Nate List hates janitors. Nate List hates janitors. I don't want to talk about janitors anymore. I'm tired of talking about janitors. It's not a fun topic. I don't want to talk about janitors anymore. I hope that there's not a janitor that listens to this episode. But if there is, take it from me. It's going to get better. See, there you go again. Condescending. Why do you do that? You have to throw that in. You were going in the right direction and then you were condescending again. This is an entry-level job. I'm sorry, that's, that's what the working world would tell you. And it's only up from here. That's a fact of the matter. I'm sorry. You're not sorry. And you're not likable.